Aggression is one of the last dirty words in our culture. You can be crass, you can be rude, you can even be profane, but ho, ho, aggressive, don't be aggressive, except it's wrong, dead wrong. I promise you nothing of meaning and transcendence will come into your life passively. It's time for you to get into the arena to push back against a passive, mediocre existence. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. Welcome to The Aggressive Life. You know, if we learn anything from history, it's that we don't learn anything from history. We keep repeating the same things again and again and again, the same problems again and again and again. We think, oh, I'm immune to the problems of the past. It's not going to happen in my life. And it ends up happening with your life. One of my favorite genres to read is biographies. I love biographies because I'm getting a sense of history and I also am getting a sense of somebody who had some success. That's why somebody is writing about them and thinking that enough people like me are going to buy the book. I mean, what's the last biography you read of uh, of the girl next door or the, the boy next door? What's the last one you read? Probably not at all because they're just normal, doing good stuff. But when somebody gets written about them, it's on the back end of aggressive moves that they made, aggressive decisions that were above and beyond the fray, things that were outside of the norm, things that people thought would never work and couldn't ever happen. They actually made them happen. What makes people like that stand up and stand out from the rest of us? I think it's that they don't stop. I think it's that they keep pushing forward. I think that they don't take their failures too seriously. I think it's they believe that their future, what is ahead of them, is going to be better than what was behind them. The rearview mirror in your car is small, and you'll never get anywhere looking into that small object. But you look through the windshield, it's big and it's bright, and it gives you your future, and that's what's going to determine what the rest of your day looks like, what's in front of the windshield not what's behind the rearview mirror. And history tells us that those of us who can look forward, who cannot repeat the things that happened behind us, either in our generation or previous generations, are going to be better off. I want you to have a better life. Do you want it? Do you want a better life? Am I the only one who's wanting to say, I I do. I want a better life. Me. I want more things. I want more happiness. I want more smoothness in my life. I want a better life. One of the best ways to learn this is by looking closely at the lives of aggressive men and women who came before us, people who put a real dent in the world. Well, today I welcome a dream guest, The Aggressive Life. I've I've read his books. I've been in rooms we've taught before. He's coming to The Aggressive Life to us. He's author and biographer, Stephen Mansfield. Uh, he's dove in deep in the lives of some of the most positively aggressive figures in history, And what he's learned has set the trajectory for his life and the lives of countless others. But he's not just a learner, he's an actual doer. Besides writing books, Stephen focuses much of his energy on reclaiming the code of manhood through his Great Man Movement, which includes a series of books, a podcast, and personal coaching, among other things. 
Today we're talking to him about the role aggression has played in his life, who inspires him to keep pressing forward, and the state of manhood in our culture. Welcome to the aggressive life, Stephen Mansfield. <laughs> Great to be with you, my friend. Yes, you too, you too. You know, I, if I did my math right, you published 29 books. 29 and counting, baby. 29. Like, how how in the world are you doing that? You know, I've just been very, very fortunate. I have a pretty vibrant intellectual interest. I'm interested in a lot of things, a lot of people, a lot of history, a lot of themes. And so far, by God's grace, I've had publishers who have been willing to work with me. So I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of time hidden away in your office, but, but uh, I'm grateful for it. So the first time I ran across you... I was visiting my brother and sister-in-law, along with my wife, down in Nashville, Tennessee, at this church called Belmont, and you were teaching that day. You had a little overhead projector, which back in, I don't know what it was, maybe it was 1992 or something, like overhead projector in church. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. It was innovative. It was. Totally innovative. You were a skinny little thing back then, too. Total skinny little thing. And and I'm not saying you're fat plump right now. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you've... um, I don't know. I think you've had a lot of transformation in your life. A lot of things have changed differently because I, I remember going that day and said, oh, that, that, that was good. That was, that was interesting. It wasn't, uh, I don't think the guy I was expecting, but it was him. It was good, man. You, you had some You had some good deep thoughts. And then I picked up this book years and years later, God in Guinness. And I read yeah. that book and I was like, man, this is a good fact. I like that book so much. I think I was the largest buyer in the history of your books. I think I bought... I think I bought ten thousand copies. I bought I got oh, I bought wow. five to ten thousand copies. I distributed to everybody at the church I lead who who gave something or something like that. And and then I was the whole time I was reading, I was going, wait a minute, wait, wait, is, is this the same Stephen Mansfield? And it is it the same are you the same Stephen Mansfield I saw in Nashville preaching? You are a few pounds heavier, but I absolutely am that same Stephen. So Mansfield. what happened in your life from you were you were preacher guy in a church to prolific author? Could you can you share like were the things that changed your life? You know, I was I was always the kind of pastor who knew I would pastor for half my life, but not all my life. It wasn't that I was angry. It wasn't that I I'm not the kind of guy who hates the church or resents the church. I just knew that I would be in church leadership for about half my life, but ultimately. I would end up doing a lot of what I'm doing now, engaging the culture directly, speaking a lot on television, a lot, you know, international, things like that. So there just came a point where I transitioned out. And almost as soon as I did, I had the chance to write The Faith of George W. Bush. And that's the book that really repositioned me. Um, It just was a big seller. And my first New York Times bestseller, and it was a big seller. And it kind of gave me the sort of platform related to, you know, faith and politics and culture that I've that I'm still on now. So that's what opened the door. So you did the book on George Bush, The Faith of George W. Bush. It was a New York Times bestseller. Um, I understand it was the inspiration for Oliver Stone's film. And I'm curious, in the process of putting that book together, was there anything about him that surprised you? You know, I, I think what surprised me the most was how down to earth he is. Uh, we, we all know it. We see it. Uh, but being the son of a president, being the son of a CIA director, a vice president, uh, being part of the wealthy Bush family, 
you would expect somebody who is highfalutin and bigger than his britches and and so on. But even though he's got that Texas swagger, he's unbelievably down to earth. I mean, I, I, I get to spend time with a few Secret Service people in D.C. Um, all of them have worked with Bush. They love him more than anybody else they've worked with. Um, they, you know, he challenges them to go, you know, bicycle riding and all that kind of thing. You know, I mean, he just he's just down to earth. And I, and I got to tell you, the thing I most admire about him right now is that here he is an ex-president. What does he spend his time doing? He spends his time painting wounded, wounded veterans in VA facilities all over the country. There have been big exhibits of his work, and he's Painting. pretty good. So to think, to think of it, yeah, he that. paints. You, if you look him up and check him out, and what he spends most of his time doing is painting, and his favorite subject is painting the wounded vets and survivors of the, of the wars that occurred while he was president. Uh, so I, I, I really admire Did you him get that. any personal time with him when you wrote that book? I did before the season that I was writing the book. I knew him from Texas okay. politics. Uh, but I didn't actually get a chance to interview him during the writing of the book. And I got to tell you, my experience is that the subject of these books normally aren't the best ones to tell their story. Uh, but I did have access to the family. I talked to Dad Bush, Mom Bush. I talked to brothers and sisters and friends out in Midland, Odessa, and got really got the story from them. Um, but but my experience is that normally, believe it or not, the people, uh, famous people who have had uh, spiritual lives that are of uh, impact in, in their leadership, they're not the best ones to tell the story. It's better to get those who are around them. And I was really grateful that the Bush family gave me so access. So I haven't read that book of yours, but I, I may read that book of yours. What? I know, I haven't. What? I haven't. <laughs> I, 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 two books of yours I've read, at least two. They were fantastic. We'll get into those in just Thank a moment. You. But just before we park the, the George Bush conversation, I got to hear your, your take on two things. One, is he as dumb as he's made out to be or anywhere near as dumb. And two, uh, is does he have pangs of regret of getting us into a war that looks like now we shouldn't have gotten into? He is not as dumb as people say. Uh, this is a man who's a you know Yale graduate, Phillips Exeter graduate, Harvard graduate. Uh, he's a smart man. He's just there. Are, as you know, there are certain types of intelligence. There's the guy we all knew in high school who didn't do that well with book learning, but he could fix anything that moved. There was the other guy who didn't do that well in book learning, but he could reprogram a computer. You don't know what I'm yes, talking sir. about. Um, there are different types of intelligence. He has a certain type of intelligence, um, which may not be mathematical. It may not. It's certainly not uh, verbal and literary and rhetorical. <laughs> you know, uh, he wasn't that great of a speaker. He's not that great with words, but he's a very intelligent man. Um, and no, I don't think he does regret that war. I think that he believes we were supposed to get into it. I think he believes that uh, he responded correctly. It was the appropriate thing to do. Uh, and he has said that publicly repeatedly, including when I've been in the room uh, listening to him speak. So, um, And there's a famous general, I don't know if you're aware of him, General Sadr, uh, who was Saddam's uh, senior general. And General Sauter is now a Christian living in Oklahoma. And he says, absolutely, we had missiles that we just moved them. We had weapons of mass destruction. We just moved them when the inspectors came. So I think that's the information that George Bush has that's uh, far beyond my knowledge and far beyond my level of detail. But I think he would disagree with that assessment that the war was illegitimate. Well, this isn't a political statement. It's just a leadership statement that if I'm president of the United States at 9-11 and the worst thing that I've ever heard of on American soil goes down on my watch. You're damn straight. I'm going to be aggressive at having some response. 
I mean, the, the, the thought that we would right now go, oh, we should just kind of sit back and think about that. It's easy to say that whatever it is, 10 years, 15 years later, whatever that, that was. But man, when you're a leader, you're paid to move. You're, yes. you're paid to move. And so whatever mistakes he made, I've always given him a lot of grace for it because I know that's what leaders do. Now, I guess it's easy for me to give him grace as well because I don't have a family member that lost their life in one of those wars. But I think that as leaders, it's very easy to be second-guessed by followers who don't move and do anything. It's one thing to yes. move places, another one to just, oh, I hope you make the right decision for me, even though I'm not making any decisions in my life. Well, and, and by the way, we should keep in mind that we won that war. We won it quickly. It was the peace that we lost. Uh, we're, our, military, our military force is not good at keeping peace. It's not good at nation building, and it's not really designed for that. So we won that war. We won it quickly. We won it fairly mercifully. Um, but it was the ongoing, you know, terrorist war we ended up fighting for years there that was the problem. And we made some big mistakes like dismissing the Republican Guard and so on. So anyway, I know you don't want to debate that in detail, but I admire him very much. And I think he's one of the best ex-presidents we've ever had. So I've never read that book. Not sure if I will, but let's talk about God and Guinness. Oh, my word. That book was amazing. I was really struck deeply by the vision of Arthur Guinness. I, I don't remember if you said in the book or I, I read it someplace else or heard somebody else say it, that a man never fights a war he can't win. Speaking of George yes. Bush, yes. Ne- he never fights a war he can't win. And well, why don't you just give us the, the background behind alcohol and what was happening um, around Arthur Guinness's life and why he decided to do what he did. Yeah, Arthur Guinness grew up on the estate of an archbishop. His father was the estate manager. And one of the things his father was really good at was brewing beer. Now, you have to understand that at that time, uh, there had been the famous gin craze. Parliament had outlawed the uh, importation of hard liquor, so the British people began making it themselves, specifically gin. They began distilling it in their homes. And before long, about 25% of all the homes in England were gin houses. It was a way to make money. Uh, and there are, there are famous stories about there being signs, you know, dirty straw for so many pence, clean straw for so many pence, because people would just go and get drunk and pass out. And we know from that time that people gave it to children to help them sleep. They gave it to the elderly, you know, etc. So there was a gin craze. But it was drunk and it was rampant. And a British bishop said uh, that gin made the British people what they never were before, cruel and inhuman. So without really knowing the specific medical reason for why people began, people realized that beer was an answer to this. Uh, it's much, much less, uh, an alcohol content. And it had a lot of nutritional value that again, we didn't really understand until Louis Pasteur came along in the mid 1800s and taught us about microorganisms and what have you. Um, and you have to realize at this time, people didn't drink water. People didn't believe in drinking water from a stream or a river. They'd had some bad experiences. People had died. So a brewer like, like uh, Arthur Guinness was seen as, a, as, as a, a social do-gooder. He was seen as somebody fixing society because beer solved that crisis. Drinking beer solved that crisis, hmm. especially the lighter alcohol content beer they were brewing at the time. So he went on then, uh, a man very accomplished in beer, and went and, and uh, bought some property in Dublin and started the famous Guinness Brewery and became very successful and very, very wealthy. You want me to go on with the story? Well, or yeah, to- <laughs> well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just cue you because I mentioned it in the book, I wrote sure. five marks of a five marks of a man. One of the marks of a man is he has a vision where a boy, a boy lives day to day. And yes. it really struck me this vision this guy had to have a lease for 
what was a hundred years? Tell us about the lease. No, no, no. He went and signed a lease for nine thousand years. <laughs> I, I've never heard of anything like it. In all my all my knowledge of business or all this, I've never in my whole life have I heard anything like that. They're still living off that lease, and I think they're obviously they're only a couple hundred years into it. Nine thousand year lease, but clearly he was a man of vision. What really changed the situation, though, was he met John Wesley. And you remember that the whole Methodist movement, the whole Wesleyan revivals began with uh, Wesley and Whitfield and Charles Wesley going to the poor, going to debtors' prisons, and so on. So Wesley taught this wealthy brewer something that he'd never heard before. He said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can to the glory of God. So that that gave Arthur Guinness a Christian vision for what he was doing. You know, previously people said if you had a calling, you went to serve in the church, but your beer brewing in particular would have been secular work. But this gave, this Wesley's words gave Arthur Guinness a Christian vision for what he was doing. And he began to use his company and his wealth for the glory of God, as Wesley had said, and immediately began to start hospitals for the poor. And he started a Sunday school movement in Ireland and he, uh, defended the rights of Catholics. He had a lot of Catholic workers, even though he was Protestant, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's what really started the Guinness Brewing Company on the path of doing social good with their wealth. And what came of that was just stunning through the centuries. Uh, I, I find his life inspiring because he got off script for what many people believe religion is today. People today would have said, well, you know, if, if, if gin is doing it, then we're just going to say we shouldn't be drinking. And that line about a man never fights a war he can't win, he realized trying to tell a good percentage of men that you can never drink, you're never going to win that war. That's right. It's a, in fact, it's a, it's a stupid war to fight. And that he comes up with the idea of, okay, I'm going to give you some thick, tasty beer. It's going to give you some calories and give you some alcohol content. But, you know, you can have three of them and not go home silly drunk. I, I think that's just utterly brilliant. It is brilliant. And by the way, uh, even though he couldn't have known the details of it, that beer is so nutritious that pregnant women have been given it uh, for many, many years on the Irish national health system, basically. God the bless system. America. <laughs> or actually, God bless Ireland, I guess. God bless that. Ireland, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I got, man, I want to pick your brain on some people here. For all the listeners, I don't care if you like this podcast or not, because I'm having fun and it's all about me. So long as I get to talk to Steven one-on-one, -on -one, you're more than welcome to be a part of it. But seriously, if you don't like what I'm asking, tough toenails, go start your own podcast and you can do it. But na 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 na, I'm me and I get to, I get to control the conversation. So let's, uh, uh, before we come back to individuals, I've got a whole list of people I want to run down with you. I want to talk about another topic that you and I are pretty passionate about, and it's the topic of men. Men, men, men. You know, it's been said before, you know, if a, if a man eating line went inside of a church, he would die of starvation. Yeah. It's true. It's true, and it's very, very sad. There is a hyper crisis of masculinity inside of our culture, and you wrote a book you wrote, you wrote a book on that very thing. Was it Mansfield's, what, what was it? Mansfield's book of manliness? Mansfield's book of manly men. And then I followed that with Building Your Band of Brothers. Yep. Okay, so I haven't read Band of Brothers, but you know, Mansfield's book You are book really, of, you're probably going to hell for not reading some of these books. You know that, right? <laughs> We're, you're going to get a chance to talk all your product. It's all good all the time. But let's talk about men and the crisis we have in masculinity in our country. Um, 
What, what, what do you think is going on with men in our country? Uh, things do not look good. Our suicide statistics are, are way outpacing women. Obviously, we are the active shooters that all of us think of. We are succumbing to mental illness at a much higher degree than women. We have more alcohol, speaking of alcohol, alcohol-related incidences and deaths. And I mean, it is just not a good scene, what's happening for men in America. It's not for women either, but for men, there are outcomes that are affecting and hurting a lot of people. What do you think is going on? Well, I think it's a combination of things. I think we began to have an age of the irresponsible male. Uh, fatherless homes, men who didn't speak to their sons, even if they were in the home. And uh, so as a result, you didn't have a a male culture. You didn't have a band of brothers. You didn't have a male culture to initiate the boys into. And, uh, you know, that African proverb that says, if we do not initiate the boys, they'll burn the village down just to feel its warmth. And I think now we've got uh, a bunch of uh, boys, a generation of young men who have not been mentored, have not been fathered, don't know what noble manhood is. And then they're under attack from the broader culture. Um, I do a lot of lecturing on university campuses and speaking and so on. And I'll tell you, uh, manhood, masculinity is under attack. I call it the guerrilla theory of men that, that a lot of the universities have. We needed the men when we needed to you know, tame the frontier and raise the steel and lay the tracks and all that kind of thing. But the prevailing view is that in a, in a, in a media age, and a digital age, and in an information society, men don't have the aptitude for it. So they're sitting in a cage like a gorilla with a banana scratching themselves trying to figure out what's going on. I'm not saying that's what I believe. I'm saying that's a summary of what's being taught on the university campuses. So what we've got to do is we've got to get men to band together, uh, to begin to get a vision for noble manhood, to begin to walk that out together, and then bring up the boys in it. I think it's fixable, um, but there's absolutely no question that boys are in stunning decline and, you know, a lot of the reason is that we don't have men not only there to mentor them, but to tell the rest of society uh, what's going on with boys. Quick little story. When my son turned about 12, 13, it basically the police brought, it, brought him to me one night and, and told me that he had been laying in the street in the dark, seeing how close he'd let cars get to him before he jumped up and ran to the curb. Well, you know, all the women in his life wanted to put him in military school and lock him up and put him in a straight jacket. And I took it seriously. I disciplined him, but I also knew what it was because you and I both know that male adolescence is a form of mental illness. We all do crazy stuff. We blow up cats and jump off roofs and steal things yep. and go crazy. What you got to have is a man there to narrate that journey. And so when I told everybody, hey, back off, he's okay. Uh, I'll work with him. But that, that's, that's the situation, you know, it, we were able to walk it through. So I think we've got an unmentored, untutored, unfathered young generation. And the solution is for the older men to bond together and reclaim a vision for noble manhood, not an anti-woman attitude at all, uh, but a a vision for noble manhood that serves in society, uh, helps men understand who they are, how they're uniquely made, and then begins to turn the benefits of that onto the young. Well, the narrative of women having it hard is, you know, is is a well-known narrative and an totally accurate narrative. I think still, if you're going to be a man or a woman in our country, I think it'd be easier to be a man than a woman. I think women still have it very much, much more difficult in our culture. I agree. I agree with you completely. But we're seeing the fraying of these men. And when men fray, they, they create more damage than when women fray. We're seeing this all over the place. And I just, I mean, we're, we're seeing stuff that has never before happened in anthropological history. We've never seen 
a culture where the women are more educated than men. That's the way it's going to be on college campus, the way it is right now. We've never seen a culture what happens when women out-earn men and men aren't the main breadwinners. We've never seen that before in anthropological history. We're, we're, we're seeing it now. Um, yeah. these, these things are bad. There's nothing wrong with them. But, man, it is true. We've never seen a culture that really didn't need the muscles of men because we had robots and all that other stuff. So, I mean, what do you think, man? Do you think we're, you think we're doomed? Do you think that uh, we need to start creating different outlets for, for men? Or what? Uh, just, just, just keep going. Keep, keep teaching us. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate for women. So let me just say real quickly that I've got a daughter who's 29. I want her to be the Pope, the president, the CEO, the general, everything she can ascend to, I want her to be. So uh, I'm a big advocate for women. The problem is not that women are rising. The problem is the decline of men. I mean, if you look at the percentages, it's uh, it, it's the proportion of women, for example, who are getting higher degrees as compared to men that's the issue. I'm thrilled yes, for every woman who exactly. you know, ascends and achieves. So I don't think we're in a tug of war. But uh, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, what, what we've got to do is help men understand what manhood is, how they should help each other. Men have special needs. Men need to bark at the moon and blow stuff up and ping it, pee in the sink and have some controlled wildness and, and, and do the things pee that in the men sink. need to do. Men pee in the sink. Yes. Have you, when's the last time you peed in the sink? You know, I was talking to your wife last week, and she said that's a major problem in your Dude, home. Dude, if it drains, I pee in it. I'll be very honest. <laughs> I, I do. Everyone knows it. Doesn't matter where it is. I, I'd rather be outside going beside my driveway than actually in a toilet. But I digress. Keep going. Well, and the, so the fact is that you got to teach men, for example, yeah, you need some wildness. You need some rowdiness. You need to be, you know, have that controlled violence of, of, of uh, pick up sports and stuff like that. But you don't take that out on your wife. You don't take it out on your children. You don't take it out by going postal at your work, things like that. So there, there are there's, men are unique and they've got to be taught how to, how to handle uh, their own special drives and needs and powers and use them for the good of society. And when, when it's done well, it's beautiful. So I absolutely think what's going on in society is reversible. I just think we're just getting started on the reverse. Um, and I think so, I, I'm seeing really great things happen in the movement that I'm helped by, I'm part of, what I'm seeing happening around the world. Men are realizing it's gone badly. They're beginning to make a turn. They're beginning to reclaim themselves. They're beginning to turn to the next generation. I think we can fix this, absolutely. So tell me about your great man movement. What is that? Great man movement is, you know, beyond being a podcast and a website and, and a series of books. Uh, it's heading towards being a series, a series of events where I bring men together, uh, teach them the things we're talking about here, put them in extreme sports, maybe teach them how to repel out of helicopters or other kinds of extreme things that, that uh, you know, aren't, don't alone make them men, but at least it pushes them to the edge and let men bond together. I want to have events, intense weekend events um, that will help men reclaim what they're about and then go build a band of brothers. One of the things I really am big on is the fact that you cannot do noble manhood alone. You've got to have a band of brothers. You've got to have a group of men around you that you're investing in. They're investing in you. They see things about you you don't see. And at the heart of that thing is what I call a free fire zone. A free fire zone is where anything that should be said uh, will be said. Anything that needs to be said to make you better will be said. We won't sit there and wring our hands and go, oh, what's going to happen? Who's going to talk to him? You know, and worry that we're going to hurt your feelings. We're going to love you. We're going to care for you. We're going to pour into you. You're going to pour into us. We're going to have a lot of fun along the way. A lot of animals are going to give up their lives for the, for the food we're going to eat. Um, we're going to have a blast. But we're also going to speak manfully into each other's lives. And I, I think, you know, in previous generations, your ancestors, my ancestors, 
they had manhood automatically built in. They had large families. And they had grandpa and the uncles living in the house, and they lived in compounds, and they lived in tribes and villages. Today, we've got to be intentional about those male connections, and that's why that the male suicide rate you mentioned is skyrocketing. When you do the postmortem on most of these male suicides, most of these men say there's not a man living who knows anything about what's going on with me. So they've got women in their lives, but a man needs men in his lives to not feel alone, and that's what we've got to begin to fix. So I like that phrase, a free fire zone, where you can say anything you need to say to one another to help them. Are there are, are there like five sample things that guys should be saying more often to one another? What's an example of something you'd hear in a free fire zone that maybe some of the guys who are listening right now would probably have somebody tell them aggressively if they actually were in genuine relationships with other guys? Well, first of all, let me just say broadly, it could be anything, and that's encouraging to me. If I, if I got t- terrible table manners, or if I, if, if, you know, I, here's the deal. The bottom line is you need to have men close enough to watch, to know what's going on in your life without you having to narrate them for it. So when I have the bitter, angry f- cell phone call with my wife, they go, hey, what's going on at home? Bev's awesome. What are you doing? Or when they see me checking out the backside of the waitress five times at a restaurant, they go, man, what is up with you? You got this awesome wife. What's happening? Or they see me slipping from one glass of wine a night to five. Or, they, or whatever it is. You know, I've got a band of brothers. They actually call me. I do a lot of traveling and speaking, as you know. And I ha- they actually call me on the road to check on things. You know, they, I don't have any particular addictions, but they'll just say, no problem with women. You're not, you're not running past that HBO porn in the hotel room. How's the food going? You get your workout in. Okay, how's your program? Great. And it's not like they're safeguarding against any specific deformity in my life. They just care about me and they're not stupid. And they know that life on the road comes with a lot of potential flaws and, and you know, pitfalls. So, that's what you need. You need men getting in your grill. You need men asking you about stuff. I've, we've confronted men in our gang of guys about their language, about their bitterness towards their father, about not being the best husbands, about their weight. Yep. We're not hurting each other. We're not trying to harm each other. But whatever needs to be said to make you better, I'll say. And whatever, will be, and then you, then I'll coach you through it. The same thing with me. Whatever you see in my life that I, I need to improve in to be to fit the model of noble manhood we're all living for then that's, that's, coach me, confront me, deal with me. I want to be the best man I can be. I like that idea of just being known, having somebody call you when you're on the road. It just makes you realize, okay, I'm loved, I'm known. This isn't calling me because you're kind of going through the 10 commandments and am I obeying them all today? It's just, hey, brother, I got you. You're not forgotten. You're not a nameless face. You're, you're my brother. I appreciate you. I love you. I love that. That's great. I can't, I'm not smart enough to do life alone. I have an awesome wife, but I need a band of men around me. I need them to check with me and call me and confront me and, and keep an eye on me and see me in 3D view in a way I can't see in the mirror unless I look at my own life. And without that, I think that men are going to fail. And that's a lot of what's going on. We don't have the natural built-in manhood culture that happened automatically a generation or two ago. Yeah, well said. All right, let's go back to how smart you are. Twenty nine books. I still, yeah, I, I, that's still impressive. And I don't care if you have ghostwriter or not. That's just, just, that's just amazing. That's impressive. I don't, by the way. Thank you for saying that. I don't have that. I uh, write every word myself. Wow, impressive. Even more impressive. All right, so let's, I do have research. I have research, but I write every word myself. All right, well, that's cool. Well, you you've researched more people than I have. So we're gonna do a lightning round here. We're gonna do a little lightning round. I'm gonna call out the name of some of the people you studied and written books about, and I. I want you to respond with their most aggressive move or what you think we can learn from these lives, even if you don't like one of these lives. Like I, I like that we brought up George W. Bush. I know we got people like, oh, George W. But you just 
pushed us a, a little bit on, on George W. Bush. So as I bring out these names, I want you to give, hey, here's what we should learn about this person and the aggression that we should honor them for. Here we go. Well, we already did him once. We're doing it. George W. Bush, go. Most aggressive thing he did? Yep. I think the most, ag- most aggressive thing he did was insist on being a man's man in office and res- respond as a man to the situations there. I, I, I admire him as a man. I admire his, uh, his aggressiveness in office and going after things. And, and that, I think, is going to be his legacy. Awesome. President Barack Obama. I disagree with Barack Obama on almost every single policy initiative. However, when he would speak to black families, black men, um, call men to be responsible, speak in church, he was fierce. He was tough. He was he was dangerous, almost risky. And I really admire that. And most of my most of my leading black friends do as well. They really admired him on that. So I think that showed some courage, showed some guts. And I admire him for that. Brewer Arthur Guinness. Arthur Guinness, the main thing that Guinness did that I deeply admire uh, is that he passed a legacy on to his sons. Now, this is not just, hey, here's the company, run with it. If he hadn't transferred his values to the next generation uh, when he died relatively early in 1803, we wouldn't be talking about Guinness to this day. It would have died with him. But he passed that legacy on, that those values, that vision on to the next generation, and they carried it. Winston Churchill. Ah, Winston Churchill. Love Winston Churchill. Main influence in my life. Uh, The main thing about Winston Churchill that I admire is the way he conquered bitterness over his father. He was aggressive in that sense. His father was descending in the madness most of Churchill's life. Um, He really hated his son. I could go into the stories extensively. Even after the man died, Churchill was still having dreams and visions of being haunted by the guy. But when the guy died in 1895, when Lord Randolph died, Churchill decided to make peace with him uh, after he died and to see his political life as an extension of his legacy. And he said as much. And so he wasn't going to enter parliament at his father's side, as he said, but he could extend his legacy. And I got to tell you, that was huge because his father hated him, treated him badly, wouldn't visit him when he was in boarding school, just treated him poorly, spent very little time with him, spoke ill of him in public. I mean, it was horrible. Why did he hate him? Churchill was a stuttering overweight, uh, low, low achiever in school, who was an embarrassment to his leading politician father who had a serious arrogance streak. Um, and so it's, if it hadn't been for his nanny, Elizabeth Everest, uh, Churchill would not have been attended by either one of his, his parents. His parents just, even, even Churchill's son said that the grandparents neglect of Winston Churchill, uh, was astonishing even by the, uh, values, according to the values of the Victorian era. So, it was the nanny who rescued him, and it was Churchill's decision to live at peace, not be bitter the rest of his life. Many men are bitter about their fathers. They spend their life medicating. They spend their life in bitterness and smallness. Churchill allowed his father's legacy to enlarge him, even though it could have crushed him. Damn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I might want I, I could stop right there. Wow. That's a whole, he's, yes, dudes. Stephen Mansfield is ringing your bell right now. Wow. All right, I got, th- I got, I got three more for you. Go. President Abraham Lincoln. People don't tend to know the story because they know most of what they know about Lincoln from textbooks, but Lincoln suffered horrible depression. His mother died when he was nine. His sister died when he was 16. His, the first love of his life died when he was in his early 20s. He was, a, he was probably a manic depressive. Uh, he said all his life he was haunted by the thought of rain falling on graves. Then, of course, he, he lost two sons during his lifetime when they were young. 
and he had to lead the Civil War when we now know there were over 700,000 deaths that most people laid at, at uh, Lincoln's door. So his conquering of depression, uh, his conquering, I mean, it's much worse than what I'm even describing now. He actually tried to, he, he started, he uh, came so close to suicide a couple of times in his youth that, that friends stood suicide watch, what we now call suicide watch. Um, so he conquered that and became the man we know now. His humor, his great, uh, his great poetic speeches, all of that, I believe, came out of his battle uh, to win uh, over the darkness that came in the night. And he won. He did win. He did win. There's no question. He did win. And uh, it's a miracle. It's unbelievable. I've never, I've never really known of a life with as much suffering in it as his. Uh, and yet he's rated our greatest president. That's only possible uh, because of what he conquered in his soul. And I, I, I think that's, that's a stunning statement of, of the kind of aggression men need to have, mastering themselves. Educator Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington decided to talk to black America about pe being people of value and character when they had newly been freed from slavery and many of them just wanted to sit on their porch and not have to work and be supported by somebody out of bitterness towards slavery. I'm not saying that wouldn't have been a legitimate response for some folks, but it would lead to poverty. And Booker T. Washington said we have to be people of character. We should be people of Christian faith. We should love America and we should make our, ourselves of value on the, on the market. He took real heat from that, but I'll tell you, the, you know, one of the fastest growing economic segments in America today uh, is millionaires uh, who, are, who are aging now, who are getting over the age of 70, black millionaires who are getting over the age of 70. So it, it really black advance has largely happened. Yes, it was important that we fight for civil rights, but black advance has largely happened through economic empowerment and through, through people achieving economically. Uh, whether in sports or business or whatever. So he was right. He was prophetic. He was ahead of his time. And he took a lot of heat from it. And I admire him for that stance. The Kurdish people of the Middle East. Last one. Kurdish people of the Middle East. Most amazing people I've ever met. Uh, I would have to say it's their ferocity of friendship. They, when they're, If they're aggressive, they're aggressive in friendship. I was once in the Middle East when gunfire broke out. Uh, I was near it. I was in danger. Kurds, Kurdish men began to jump on me and climb up on me. It takes about four Kurdish men to make a guy my size. And they began to jump up on me and cover me to protect me. In fact, one guy jumped on me, realized he couldn't cover the subject, and screamed for some other men to come and surround me. And pretty, pretty soon I was in a cocoon of Kurdish men protecting me with their bodies. And the reason was that I had served their people in some way. And that's all it takes for them. And you do something good for them, you are their covenant brother for life. So I've served the Kurds for maybe about 20, 30 years, but that's not the real story. The real story is they befriended me. And uh, that's why I, I stand with them to this day. And I think we've horribly betrayed them. I know you don't want to talk about politics, and I'm perfectly happy not who's, to. But I think who's, who said we're not talking about politics? We're not okay, talking about politics. Talk about Go, what? I, I think we horribly uh, betrayed them here recently uh, through ignorance, and hopefully we're addressing that now. Um, but I'm, it's stunning that they're still our friends as a nation, uh, given what they've been through. But as for me, uh, the story is not that Stephen Mansfield decided to do good things for the Kurds, but the Kurds befriended me. All right. Why not? I'd do it. I wasn't thinking of doing it. <laughs> I really wasn't it. You just said, you, you, but you taunted me on the politics. You, you okay. taunted me. You, you did. You taunted me. We're just about ready to be done. I'm going to have two more questions for you. The second to last. Oh, I can't do this. All right, here we go. You've you've studied all these people. What's your take on Donald Trump? What's your take on how how someone 
like me should think about Donald Trump? I'm grateful for a lot of what this administration is doing. I'm grateful uh, for the, the, I mean, I'm, I'm right. I'm slightly right of center. So I'm grateful for some things. Um, but I will tell you for those of us who are Christian leaders that his manner and the way that some leading evangelicals are rallying to him blindly, uh, we will be dealing with in the church for generations. Um, he's, uh, we all know that he's an adolescent man. He's a flawed man, whatever his other gifts. Uh, and again, I'm grateful for some of the things that are happening in this administration, but I will say uh, that his manner, his lack of understanding of some of the affairs he leads, the total chaos, the executive branches. And I'm speaking as a guy who's in DC talking to these people all the time. Uh, even the GOP leadership will tell you it's just total chaos over there in the executive branch. Uh, and we all see that, you know, the positions that aren't filled and high turnover. So I'm not one who goes around trashing Trump. I love my country. I want us to do well. Uh, Donald Trump is a mixture. There are some good things happening in administration, obviously the economy, in my opinion, is open pro-life stand, et cetera, other things like that. Um, but, but we are reaping the whirlwind with a lot of things he's done and a lot of his manner. So it sounds like I'm compromising. I won't come yeah. out clearly and say what I, I want to say. I am saying what I want to say. It's going to be mixture. The good's good, but the bad, especially in the church, we'll be dealing with for generations. Yeah, one of the things that I'm, I'm not hearing people talk about is um, if you like what Donald Trump stands for, if you like some of the decisions that he's making, let's forget about his character, which is incredibly flawed. Let's yes. forget about, I talk about the five marks of a man. He he doesn't match up very well with that. Let's forget yeah. about all, let's let's forget about all those things for a moment. For people who are really excited about some of his policies, he's he's writing a playbook that's only a matter of time till somebody who's opposed to you is going to take to the nth degree. Yes, <laughs> you know, a playbook of discord, a playbook of being dishonorable, a playbook of not valuing people who have different opinions than him, not not wanting to be collaborative. I mean, he, he is writing a playbook. You can be really excited about it, but it's coming back. What goes around comes around. I'm I'm very very concerned about the well, future. As we, as we as we have as we're speaking, uh, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, which is basically a suburb of Washington D.C. So I'm in Virginia, and when you and I are talking, recording this just after. Uh, some initial elections in which Democrats uh, made history in Virginia, uh, winning uh, the House, the Senate, and the governorship for the first time in 25 years. Now, this is a portent of what's coming. If there's going to be a Democratic wave in this country of elections, um, I tell you what, people who are supporting Donald Trump right now blindly are going to be pretty unhappy when the other side uses the same tactics, the same manner, the same tone, the same approach for their agenda. Um, so I believe in statesmanship. I believe in elevated political debate. Uh, I believe in America, but we are, we, we don't, I don't think we realize the damage being done and not just by Trump, but by others as well. And we are going to reap the whirlwind on this. Well, you're right. I don't like to talk politics. We didn't, I don't think we gave you that, that we're not going to talk politics, but I'm just realizing more and more people are confused, man. They, they, yeah. they want some talk. They want some help. They want some teaching. So I'm, I'm really wrestling. It's kind of aggressive move, actually. How do I help people politically without, you know, making, taking stances politically or, or without telling somebody to vote politically? I, I don't, I don't know how to do that, but I know that I got to do more than I have in the past, which is just be mum, shut up and hope people figure it out. You know? 
I, I, I'm, I'm a guy involved in, in, in the political world, and I believe in aggressive action. I believe in bold action. I'll tell you the main thing that's tainting, certainly the Christian the Christians in politics, if not uh, everyone in politics, is the anger. And so I'm a guy, people often say, well, why aren't you stirred up? Why aren't you angry? I'm, I'm a, I'm, I trust that I'm effective, and I'm definitely active. The difference is I'm not angry. I'm not letting anger dominate me. Donald Trump tapped into a vein of anger on the right um, that, that, we, that we still see happening. If you can't function in the political realm without the raging, defining anger that so many people are feeling today, um, then, then you are not going to be effective. First of all, you won't be effective as a leader. You won't be engaging as a leader. Um, but second of all, you'll just add kerosene to the fire. What are we all desperate for right now? God, give us a statesman. God, give us a Churchill. God, give us a Reagan. God, give us somebody who can step up at, you know, beyond just the partisan politics and lead the country. Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, leaders of two parties, used to call each other at 5 o'clock and say, hey, business is over. Come on over here. We'll drink some whiskey and play some pinochle. They got along as friends, even though they disagreed politically. And I've, I see that happening in D.C., but it's happening less and less in the country. A lot of that's cable television and other things. But you understand what I'm saying, that we've got to be able to engage in politics without just our hair on fire all the time. Uh, and I think that that would change the tone quite a bit, particularly for people of faith who shouldn't be ragingly angry to begin with. Well, well said. I I do wonder, like, if there's ever going to be a third-party candidate that was going to come out and try to split the middle, this should be the year, right? I mean, th- this should be the year that a Ross Perot or Michael Bloomberg or somebody out there or an Oprah or somebody could actually grab it. I'm, I'm just surprised no one's making an aggressive move because most of us are just very, very frustrated with this process. And that's kind of why I'm frustrated. I'm not exactly sure what to tell people other than, yeah, yeah, this sucks. I don't, I don't like the position we're in. No, it, it does. It does suck. And you know, I, I think it's a, a season that will pass. Um, but it's a good time for us to reexamine some things. It's a good time for us to re-examine the jokes we tell and how we talk about people and whether we're politically active in a redemptive and beneficial way uh, or if we're just throwing kerosene on the fire. Stephen, very, very stimulating. I'm very, very thankful for this. Uh, For people who have uh, just discovered you now, how would they connect with you? How how does that happen? StephenMansfield.tv is my website. And almost all of my social media is Mansfield Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S, one word, Mansfield Rights, Mansfield, Mansfield Rights on Twitter, Mansfield Rights on Facebook, Instagram, all of it is just Mansfield Rights. So let me hear from some folks. I'd love to connect with you. Well, you've given us a full mind full of thoughts. You've pushed us, you've uh, educated us, and uh, you've inspired us, at least speaking for me, which I said before, it's all about me. So as long as I'm having a good time, (laughs) that's good. And I had a great time today. Thanks for being with us today on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. If this episode has impacted you, hey, share with somebody else. All of us have influence, people that can look to us for direction. Use your influence positively, aggressively. And if this has meant something to you, then pass along to those that you're leading. Uh, You can see more at bryantome.com or search me on Instagram. Special thanks to the band Judges for our music. You can find more from them on Instagram at The Band Judges or at Facebook.com slash The Band Judges. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm-hmm.